Hi, everybody, and welcome to another Free Speech and Medicine podcast. I've come up with a rule in 2023. It's that anyone worth listening to has to have been cancelled at least once. In keeping with that theme, today's conversation is with Julian Summers. Julian, as you'll hear, is a clinical psychologist and a researcher, especially around the area of drug policy and harm reduction. And yes, he was canceled for having the uh, wrong views on his topic. Julian and I had a great conversation both before and after the recorded part of the interview, and I learned an awful lot by talking to him. I think you will too. It was of great interest to me to hear that Julian had worked under one of the professors who was responsible for the Rat Park study. And if you haven't read about Rat Park and you're interested in the issue of drug addiction, you should probably pause this podcast now and and go and take some time. To summarize it briefly, a lot of the studies of addictiveness on drugs were done on rats that were isolated in cages all alone. They were given regular water or heroin water. And being all alone in a cage is not normal for a rat. So not surprisingly, they, they got addicted. But when they made a rat park. It was a great environment for rats. It was exciting. There was things to do and food to hunt for and games to play and other rats to play with. And what they found was that rats did not choose to be addicted in those environments. These studies were a big step in pushing us along the road from thinking that people get addicted to drugs because drugs are addictive to people get addicted to drugs because there's something fundamentally missing in their lives. Julian does a great job of describing how methadone and other replacement drugs were first envisioned as just part of broader programs which involved reintegration into society, including reemployment, reconnection with family, uh, getting off the street. And as he describes it, the active ingredients were the things that were not the actual drug. Unfortunately, under the influence of big pharma and politics, we've ended up in a place where the only part of a methadone program now is the methadone. In short, we seem to have lost the plot and taken our eye off the prize, which is actually making people better as opposed to just making it easier for them to stay on drugs. Julian makes the great point that the term safe supply is actually a marketing term the neutral and scientific term is public supply of addictive drugs. I consider Julian perhaps the most important thinker, the most important voice in drug policy in Canada in 2023. I'm so happy he's agreed to come to Free Speech and Medicine to speak for us. I'm very flattered that he took the time to speak with me for this podcast. Remember that you can come and hear Julian and meet him in person at Free Speech and Medicine 2023 in Bedeck, October 27th to 29th. You can sign up at freespeechandmedicine.com. All right. Hello, Free Speech and Medicine Paradox podcast listeners. Thanks very much for joining me. This is the next in a series of interviews with our speakers for the 2023 Free Speech and Medicine Conference, which is happening October 27th to 29th in beautiful Bedeck, Nova Scotia. If you haven't already registered, you can go to freespeechinmedicine.com and check out the links. And we have a great bunch of speakers this year. My guest today is Dr. Julian Summers. Dr. Summers is a clinical psychologist who is currently living and working in BC. Um, His name popped up for me because he caused a bit of a stir recently, and we'll get into that. But like many of our free speech and medicine guest speakers and attendees as well, uh, they're they're people who are a little off the rails with what's allowed to be said and thought in mainstream academia these days. I thought Dr. Summers' ideas were extremely intelligent and reasonable, and he just sounded like a very interesting guy and an important thinker. So, um, Julian, thanks very much for joining me today. Chris, this is awesome. Can we stop right here? I, I loved your intro. 
Uh, yeah, I hope that was okay. Um, so I'm, I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you introduce yourself a little more. Um, you have an interesting background that kind of got you into, um, you know, the the educational path that you took. Uh, tell us about how you ended up doing what you're what you're doing now. Well, probably the most interesting part is having been a really messed up kid and having um, a pretty serious um, psychiatric symptoms as a as a child. And uh, this was mainly the, the ones that were most um, caused me the biggest problems were OCD type um, anxiety and and the rituals related to OCD and started like when I was around eight. And um, I subsequently developed other problems, including problems with drugs. And by the time I was about 14, I was out of school and I was relocated uh, to uh, live with another family. I'd been adopted and uh, this was a third family that I was living with. Um, but that helped me it was uh, to get my feet under me. And part of what I learned I, I wanted to pursue was university. And um, I, I couldn't have been more fortunate uh, in that that journey led me to some incredible mentors who happened to be working in the area of addiction. And I stuck with them because they were some of the most intelligent and inspiring and nicest people that I had met so far in my life. And um, that kind of launched me in both in the network because, you know, that process of training takes about 10 years. You know, you do your your focused work in undergraduate psychology and you go into graduate school in psychology. The, the, to, to, to be a clinical psychologist, you finish your PhD and all you're doing is, is psychology practice, psychology research. And you, if you're fortunate, you become part of a very um, inspiring network of people and same people that many of whom I'm, I'm around today. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really, you know, that's really uh, what, what um, uh, got me into this area. And also what inspires me to, um, uh, in a way, you know, speak out a little bit uh, because we're from where I sit, not only personally, but maybe more importantly, from the standpoint of the scientific literature, we are very badly shortchanging people who need opportunities to establish themselves in networks, in healthy networks. And we've, and we've shown experimentally that people will embrace those opportunities and succeed when given the opportunity, and that it costs the same to do that as to leave them in the predicament of being homeless, for example. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think when I when I speak over, over time, I'm almost always emphasizing the academic literature and very rarely speaking about my own personal experience, mm -hmm. but it's become clear through my recent uh, challenges uh, that, that those personal experiences are perhaps part of what motivates me to um, refer to this academic literature that many people are familiar with, mm -hmm. but not that many are uh, emphasizing in the same way. Maybe, maybe too, I'll just emphasize or go back over a little something you said there. It's not like you're a, you didn't grow up with a silver spoon in your mouth and develop all these problems let's say for no reason you had, you had a challenging childhood, which may, maybe if you're comfortable, you can touch on that, but you, you went through some very challenging times. You managed to come through them obviously very well and become very successful. So as I see it, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I don't see you coming at the addiction issue from a judgmental holier than thou uh, stance in any way. I see you coming at it from a very compassionate and understanding way, given your own, challenges through life is that is that fair it's you know it's a, it's a that's a very kind uh description and of course i i would i would like it to be accurate um what what i what i what i can say um 
I, I suppose, uh, 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 objectively and, and hopefully not self-indulgently, mm -hmm. is, is that addictions, um, harmful addictions, um, the way we diagnose these syndromes, there, there are a lot of components that can be considered. But the, the one that really stands out most, for, especially for people who are experiencing harmful addictions, is the inability to control one's own behavior in ways that result in clearly detrimental effects, usually to oneself and often in the context of one's relationships with other people too. Mm -hmm. and, and it's that inability to control one's own behavior that um, uh, is kind of at the core of the of this, of suffering. Mm -hmm. um, so this this is and this is some people will know this. This this is really a, a feature of the term addiction itself, which um, um, contains uh, two. It's sometimes described as a Janus word because it contains these seemingly conflicting elements. One is uh, the theme of devotion. Mm -hmm. So to be addicted to things. And even today in our speech, we refer to addiction in both of these ways. The first way being kind of like a devotion, like, oh, I love that. I'm so, I'm so addicted to that. Mm -hmm. And the other is slavery. And mm -hmm. um, that use of the term addiction goes back to, well, the very fact that slaves in Roman times were just were referred to as addicts and this is being wow. given over to someone else now so it's it there's so i i i hereby command you chris you're now devoted to so and so and and now you're their slave so there's there's this element of devotion um but also the loss of control reflected in being a slave to something and um what i you know, what I was taught um, through experimental work, someone, my, my first mentor was a psychologist named Bruce Alexander. Bruce, for people who know, happen to know of, of his uh, uh, science, is probably best known for studies known as the Rat Park studies, mm. in which he showed that rats, in when isolated in cages, had markedly different morphine preferences than those same rats when they were um, provided opportunities to play with other rats, the so-called rat park. Mm. And um, in the one case, what, what stands out in terms of this, these dual meanings of addiction, the, the rats that are isolated are essentially um, enslaved to uh, isolation and, and really a deprivation of their um, uh, nature, mm -hmm. the expression of their nature. Mm. Um, and, and what, what was partially miraculous about these studies was the same rats when, um, habituated to morphine. So they become tolerant. They were now taking higher doses than they did initially and, um, uh, stabilized on, on a morphine solution. They would go through whatever rat withdrawal is like willingly voluntarily choose from the same from the same paradigm chow right next to morphine solution they would go to chow hmm. and it's very tempting of course to consider well you know why would they do that other than to be able to enjoy more time in their normal conscious state mm -hmm. with other rats adding morphine doesn't appear to be a value add mm. to the experience of being a rat in that context. Part of this came from the work that Bruce observed and, and taught me involving Vietnam veterans who returned from Vietnam, 20,000 or so, deemed addicted to heroin. This is really part of the beginning of the war on drugs. President Nixon was, and many at the Pentagon and White House were extremely concerned about importing the, uh, basically a population of addicts and the impact that would have on drug trafficking in American cities. So they, they were very, very concerned. Part of what they did was launch a very thorough research program tracking what happened. And the short answer is not too many of these guys remained addicted. Hmm. They came back and, and 
it was not at all expected. And the short answer was, you know, well, how can you use drugs over there? And, and you didn't continue using them here. Is it because they weren't available? Is it? And it was none of those things. It was basically war is war sucks. And here I have better things to do much like, so, so that's part of what I think Bruce was, was wanting to um, draw attention to through the rat park studies where, where, where all of this takes me is that the, um, one of the most powerful things we can do for people who struggle with harmful addictions is pay attention to the circumstances in their lives that may be modifiable in ways that would give them greater experiences of agency, mm -hmm. greater experiences, greater opportunities to control their own lives and, and direct them. And so that's really that's really where I'm where I, where I think I'm 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 coming from. It's what most of my research has been about. Uh, how how can we you know for instance among people who are living homeless who've been homeless for for many years, um, how 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 can we best and and practically affordably <laughs> do things that would confer to them a sufficient opportunity for agency. Mm -hmm. that they would begin crafting lives that would, on their own merits for them, lead them away from harmful addictions, right? Mm -hmm. How, how could we, could, can we do that? And the great news is, yes, we can do that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's, so I, I think to my ear, what you said earlier, although it sounded very nice, is also correct in that approaching addiction this way and approaching helping people doesn't have anything to do with, you know, judgments about what, um, you know, drugs are bad or something along those lines. It, that, that's, that would sort of be silly, really. Um, it's, it's about recognizing that the likelihood of being alive as a human being is so infinitesimally small as to basically be zero. So the fact that there are human beings who are struggling profoundly with an inability to control something that can kill them and will kill them many, mm. in many cases, should be, you know, I think a, a hugely alarming, especially when we know that it's preventable. Mm -hmm. um, if, if we do things that really cost us collectively, no more, in fact, yeah, I think because things are getting so much worse and the emergencies, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the entrails Mm. of the emergency continue to grow throughout our, our communities and through our lives. The, 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 the costs, I think, when we calculated them first in 2006, showing cost parity of helping versus leaving people, I, I, think, I think that that that's only become more in favor of helping. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're kind of in this mode of persisting, against the status quo in the hope, I guess, with the expectation that we're, that we're moving toward a tipping point. So my, so part of my thinking, and one of the things I'm looking forward to at the conference is, is speaking with people about, you know, if that, if that's true, what does it look like? What, how do we anticipate arriving at a tipping point? And then knowing that we all want to live together afterwards, how can we find our way through a shift that minimizes casualties yeah. related to the conflict? How, how can we do that? Um, we, you know, we, 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 we need to somehow, I think, uh, envision getting to a new normal um, that integrates the energies of as many people as possible, including lots and lots of the people that are currently involved in our current system of, uh, well, air quote, system of addiction services. Right. So maybe I, I'm going to tell you a little story, and then I think it's a good segue into you telling us about how your views went off the rails with the prevailing orthodoxy. Um, a friend of mine who works on a native reserve near here, where there's a lot of addiction issues, had a, a number of patients who 
needed to go in at that time was methadone. So this is a few years ago. Now it's more Suboxone, you know, which is, we call it uh, opioid replacement uh, therapy. And anyway, she, she saw that her uh, patients had to leave the reserve every day. They had to get on a bus together and go into a pharmacy off reserve and get their methadone and come back. It was basically impairing them from trying to have a real life because it was a big chunk of their day each day. So she took a methadone prescriber's course and she was somewhat shocked. She, she talked about how, what would it look like to taper these people off? How would we, what's a normal taper schedule? What's a normal taper time? And the, the, you know, I'll put it in air quotes, but the expert who was running the program gave her eye lasers and said, you know, you wouldn't take her words were you wouldn't take a diabetic off their insulin. Why would you think about taking uh, an, a person who is addicted off of their methadone? And uh, she really, she realized that the people who are running these programs look at this as a permanent thing. They kind of look at these people as permanently lost souls who have no chance of redemption and will always be using some type of drug, whether that's prescribed or not. Um, What do you think that says about our current, I don't know, maybe I I look at it maybe as infantilization of people who are addicted and, and our lack of hope for them as being productive citizens and and how does that feed into how we run our policies now it's pretty prevalent what you described i to me uh, you know at a minimum what what it illustrates is the power of of um medical education or that's really the power of education but it's the power of education in medical curricula and then it shows the power of medicine Mm -hmm. because that perspective is uh, scientifically crazy to draw a hard parallel between um, opioid dependence or or even opioid addiction um, and uh, diabetes. The literature since the 60s, actually since the 50s, is full of examples of people overcoming opioid addiction and and the circumstances that give rise to that. Mm-hmm. I'm still waiting for a paper showing the results of, of, of diabetics deciding that they they're fed up and they're going to quit. I'm quitting being a diabetic, right? That's it for me. Right. And yet it's the norm in the addiction literature and remembering addictions. I'm referring specifically to opioids because that's the example that you gave um, that well, we could talk about other drugs as well. There, there are more ex-smokers living, at least in developed countries, more ex-smokers than current smokers. Change is normative in relation to all, all kinds of harmful addictions, not so diabetes. So, um, but it's even worse than that coming from a, a physician because the programs that established methadone as a component of an intervention began in the mid 50s. Up until the mid fifties, we did not have this group that became known as criminal addicts. Before that, they were uh, referred to as medical addicts. These are doctors and pharmacists and, um, uh, sorry, professional addicts. These were doctors and pharmacists and medical addicts, which referred to patients that became addicted. And you might be aware, listeners might be aware that that longstanding overlap of, professionals who have access to the formulary, um, keeping in mind also that morphine as an isolate, the thing that made it possible to have standard doses and work on increasing potency only was a possibility, like the first uh, alkaline isolate, which happens to have been morphine, was in the early 1800s. So we've, we've had this kind of particular risk with us for a relatively short period of time, because physicians and pharmacists were the early uh, uh, people at risk, we actually have very well-developed programs for treating professionals. And they're all modeled on the programs that are used for physicians. Those programs have re- really high long-term, outco- high ter- long-term success rates. And they um, are modeled actually on the early methadone program. So I mentioned those a moment ago. What, what's, what's that? Well, in Vancouver, the Narcotic Addiction Foundation, and in New York, uh, um, under the, the funding from the Rockefeller Foundation, 
This was the famous research by uh, Marie Nyswander and Vincent Dole. Uh, most people working in this area would, would sort of, oh yeah, Dole and Nyswander, I, I know that. They, they, they published a bunch of stuff in JAMA. Yeah, they did. And they also published in JAMA in the 70s when President Nixon expanded uh, addiction treatment programs, the largest one-year expansion in addiction treatment ever any place in the world, 10 times growth in spending on narcotic addiction treatment, but it was all methadone. And they said, you've missed the point. Hmm. Well, if you go back and read their papers, they said in both the Narcotic Addiction Foundation research and in the early the Dolan Nicewinder research, the landmark research, the look at the JAMA paper that in its headline says successful treatment of 750 criminal addicts. Read that paper. It's got nothing to do with methadone. Methadone, they say, was an inducement in order to get patients into the program and help them manage withdrawal. The active ingredients they write in plain English were sustained relationships with their patients over up to two years. The outcomes they report, so how do you get 750 criminal addicts successful? 94% um, uh, reduction in offending, 94%. How do, you, how do you get that? They explain the whole purpose of these programs in both sites, it was, it, was, it was a reflection of medical thinking in North America at the time. These were avant-garde programs, by the way. But still, they described restoring people with their families and their communities, mm. with work, with relationships. Mm. They referred to them being citizens. The whole, uh, for those that are newer to addiction, um, you know, like, like me, but who've been following things like the development of this so-called recovery movement, which kind of started in mental illness and is now a bit more um, focused on addictions as a, as a domain of mental illness. But this whole recovery thing, it started with uh, a focus on abstinence. Okay, to be recovered means to be abstinent. Okay, then no, that's not good because we saw that people could be actually doing a lot better and not be abstinent. So, okay, so it can't be that. What is it? it has more, it's got more to do with agency. So I'm back to that you mm -hmm. know, addiction as something that involves um, uh, a sense of voluntary devotion as opposed to being enslaved. So yeah, so freedom and agency. And, and now this, a third wave is with us today and that's focusing on the person in interaction with the community. And it gets to things like our social contract Mm -hmm. and citizenship, which is where Dole and Nicewander and the Vancouver Clinic actually started. But as it made it way, its way into medical curricula, the active ingredients, and Dole and Nicewander wrote about this, were, were omitted. And it was a triumph of pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical marketing that right. led to the thing that you described earlier, where someone enters the field of addiction, it's gone through, gone through medical school, Somebody said, yeah, it's like diabetes, you do this. It's reassuringly concrete. It's reassuringly familiar, but it's deadly incorrect. Hmm. Just a couple of comments that it, it just that fly through my head as you're talking about that. It's so interesting to me. So um, our community, uh, Cape Breton was kind of ground zero of the uh, Oxycontin epidemic. We were had a high rate of unemployment. We had a high rate of kind of chronic pain and social dysfunction. We had some doctors who were very complicit in in creating that, and so we ended up with a very very significant addiction pro a problem here. We're we're kind of uh, like one of the hot spots in the country for that. And um, I, I noticed over the years what developed when when I first started working in Cape Breton twenty years ago now. I could get people into government funded programs for um, opioid dependence that, that involved abstinence. People say, I want to get off drugs. Well, there was, a, there was a program for that. But over time, the government shut down all of those options. So now the only programs that people can access for opioid dependence, if they want to get off opioids and they don't want to be on methadone and suboxone, because the government is more than happy to fund methadone and suboxone. I can get people 
Suboxone the next day. But if you want to be abstinent, you have to have 10 or 15 grand burning a hole in your pocket. And in the meantime, we have, uh, it's called the Ally Center in Sydney, which, you know, debatably does some good work, but uh, they, I noticed that our newspaper, we had one of the organizers for the Ally Center kind of proudly talking about how many people they had on methadone and how many clean needles they had given out. And in our community of just maybe 110,000, you know, they give it out to, I think it was 200,000 clean needles in a year. And they have, uh, I can't get the exact number, but maybe 1500 or 2000 people on methadone and suboxone in our greater community here. And, and yet our kind of our, our the actual visible social problems, the, the homelessness, the crime, the overdose deaths, all of the things that I think are actually what we're trying to what we should be measuring. Um, I, I don't think giving out clean needles is a measure of success and in ways it may be a measure of failure. Would you, would you look at that the same way or? Yeah, I, 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 I do. I, I, you know, the, the, the need for things like, um, well, here's, here's an, here's an, I think an example for me, it's a, it's a, it's, it, it's a powerful one that, um, reflects a little bit of our 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 stuckness in 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 thinking um so in the you know in the 80s and 90s and this was related to hiv aids the problem of transmission um involving sharing needles was you know hugely hugely problematic and consumption sites clearly uh well needle exchange in particular played a, a, a critical role in reducing transmission. By the time Portugal had their crisis, which included the highest rate of HIV AIDS, but also the highest rate of street drug use and, and related fatalities in Europe. By the time they were experiencing this crisis in the mid to late nineties, they chose to see it along the lines of what you're referring to to see a lot of the elements of the of the of the crisis as indicators of problems and so they they decided that they were going to focus on their their national strategy from 1999 makes this explicit they uh, i think i'll get the quote right they say strictly speaking there is no such thing as treatment without social reintegration so they were very clear minded and and they wrote this thing after a, a long process of public engagement. So it wasn't somebody's idea foisted on the general public. It was something that had been developed through consensus. But that's what they got to. What it meant was when they um, developed the, the structure that was going to animate this plan, they included dissuasion commissions, which many people I think are familiar with. They decriminalized possession of drugs below a certain limit so that police could interact with people and basically be a conduit for bringing them to the dissuasion commissions without it being um, under the threat of legal sanctions. So they did it under, under, under this uh, administrative provision, changed their relationship. Dissuasion commissions that had a whole array of resources to work with including 60 plus therapeutic communities, which are places people can go for long periods of time, much like Bull and Nicewinder's um, sustained engagement with, with their patients. And um, among the things that they had, zero consumption sites. Mm. It's, not, it's, not, it's not to say that, you know, um, consumption sites are somehow, um, uh, or that harm reduction is a is 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 a bad idea or anything like that. It's it's recognizing that the harm of being homeless, needing a place to consume drugs, is itself an indicator of problems in the community, and the way to solve that isn't by merely providing the person who's homeless and unemployed and disconnected with a place to go a few times a day and consume drugs. Mm -hmm. The challenge is responding to those other needs. Mm -hmm. 
And um, so they did that. And it was only 18 years later that they needed to um, implement their first consumption site. And that's now largely seen as, as due to the dramatic cut in funding uh, over 80% of the budget for the original provisions in their plan had been had been cut by that time. It's now going through a, 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 another era of growth uh, because the enough people recognize that. But um, yeah, these harms that we see uh, in our communities in Canada um, have, have, have accumulated over many years. Partially they are uh, consequences of our failed um, commitment following deinstitutionalization, the, mm -hmm. the, the failure to properly implement community-based services. And people need to recall that deinstitutionalization did not occur around the world on some kind of a whim or as though decision makers all said, well, let's get away from this and we'll, you know, we'll figure out an alternative as though we're going to like build the airplane while we're flying kind of thing. The evidence was already in that people manage themselves much better in both the acute phase and more importantly, in the longer term. Mm -hmm if they were supported in community settings and it's back to relationships, it's back to quality of life. Um, so we, we already knew that. And now we have just additional uh, drumbeat decades of further evidence confirming the correctness of mm -hmm. that approach paired tragically with sustained unwillingness to invest. Right. So maybe as we kind of come to the, the the final part of this interview, maybe maybe I'd ask you to just give us a little thumbnail sketch of what's happened to you recently, because you were somebody who was a well-respected researcher. You were well-funded. You were, as I understand it, you were in charge of a fairly fairly big heap of research that was going on, and then all of a sudden you became persona non grata. Can you just sketch that out for us? I used to be somebody. It's true. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I, I seem to lack some kind of a filter. Um, I, I think, and maybe it may, it may, I, you know, I've, I've, I've reflected on that a little bit. Um, cause what I've said is not something that is unique to me. Um, at least in terms of conversations I have with colleagues, um, that's become really, really clear. There are a lot of people, who have um, heard what I've said, and and who and in their own ways say something similar, um, but but there are also, you know, um, among them, probably the majority, are not comfortable speaking out. In some cases, they've people have said to me that I can't speak out. I can't speak out. I, I'd, I'd lose my job or or procedurally everything I say has to go through the communications you know, branch of the place I work or things like that. So there, there are a variety of reasons, but what, 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 what I thought, you know, we, we have so much evidence now and, and maybe I'll, I'll focus a little bit on the population of people who are really casualties of deinstitutionalization's failure, people, who, um, if we had done what we what we said we were going to do, they they wouldn't have become homeless. They wouldn't have become unemployed. Um, they 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 wouldn't be socially isolated. But what we what we can see very clearly now through uh, the miracle of computers and linked administrative data and things like that are that people from all around um, our communities across Canada who experience mental illnesses and who also experience deficient social support um, are very likely to become homeless. If we work backwards, the people who become homeless are, are almost all individuals who lack adequate social support and who've experienced neglect and harm through their upbringings. They move, they move into uh, urban areas and they uh, like Vancouver's downtown east side, where I've I've done a lot of work over the years. We 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 knew that because we'd shown in randomized trials 
that if we offer those people opportunities, they take them. So opportunities for decent housing, opportunities to um, reconnect with family members. About 25% about of the people we worked with had kids under age 18 that they were estranged from in various ways. Almost all had worked for at least one year at some point in the past, and over 80% wanted to resume paid work as one of their goals on day one when we, when we met with them. So we had a huge amount of evidence showing the possibilities to help people. And as the drug crisis became worse, the poisoning crisis, it was being framed in a way that was very problematic. Um, the, all of the blame was being placed on drugs, toxic drug crisis, leaving aside the fact that pretty much everyone in Canada can access these drugs. And many of them are not even necessarily toxic. Uh, xylazine, it's bad to ingest, but it's not toxic. Um, fentanyl is used all the time, and but can also clearly kill us. So it's, it, it's talking about the problem as though it resides with the drugs is really what we did in the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. It's taking the light away from demand. What are the factors that are responsible for creating demand? Those are the things that are modifiable. So we were asked by the province of Alberta, by their department, by their Ministry of Health, to do a review. Number of people were advocating for what they called safe supply, um, which for people in the field should have kind of a re immediately aroused suspicion. Oxycontin wasn't that long ago. Um, and, you know, the fact that there were no, there was no research done on this. And all of a sudden there are a lot of academics saying, oh yeah, this is clearly the way to go. And they're calling it safe supply when we know there are all kinds of problems associated with both acute and chronic use of these drugs. Was kind of suspicious. So we were asked to do a review. What's the evidence? So we, we showed that almost all of the papers calling for safe supply were produced in BC. None of them, not one, presented evidence supporting the practice they were calling for. And more worrisome to me, they almost all described samples of people who were homeless, um, dependent on stealing things to survive, so repeatedly involved with courts and corrections. Mm -hmm. They um, had untreated addictions, but that was, and none of these things, and none of these things were discussed in their papers um, in the discussion section. So they were reported, therefore we need safe supply, and no mention of what about adequate, what about empirically supported housing mm -hmm. or support for mental uh, mental illness treatment? Mm -hmm. What about what about supported employment? We've had that since the 70s for people with serious mental illnesses. What about any of these things? Not a peep. So in, a, in, a, uh, in this review, we summarized the, the evidence the way we do in reviews, not the way I'm talking right now, but you know, in, in, mm -hmm. in, in academic language. Uh, we drew attention to the, what, what I'll say colloquially is just missed opportunities. Like there, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that we could be doing. Um, and, and there are some odd things about this safe supply advocacy. By the way, we use the term public supply of addictive drugs. I think safe mm -hmm. supply is really uh, chosen for its marketability. Right. But um, like, for instance, how much is it going to cost? What's the mm -hmm. cost per, per patient estimated year one mm -hmm. of providing um, medications to people, drugs to people in the manner that, that, that the advocates are, are talking about? And, um, and what's the exit strategy? Once we get them connected, because this is a practice that is differentiated from treatment. It's, it's for people who are not connected with treatment. It's for people who are alienated socially and who are procuring drugs illicitly that put them at risk. And the whole idea is to minimize the amount of friction involved in them accessing those same drugs from illicit source mm. so that it would displace their follow through and procuring them Ill illicitly. That, that's, the, that's the idea. So once you've got them, then what? Mm -hmm. So far to this day, none of the advocates that, that, that I, and I read this literature, I'm finishing a systematic review on this same topic as we, as we speak right now. 
Um, none of them talk about these issues at all. So we we thought like this is this is kind of problematic because some of the authors were colleagues of mine. I reached out to a few of them before we published our review and said, hey, you know, we're referring to some of your work. This is how it's striking us. And a couple of them spoke to me and were accepting and and we still talk. A couple, mm -hmm. Others completely ignored, like started ghosting me. Mm -hmm. And um, once the review came out, we were simply attacked. The center that really drives a lot of this is the BC Center on substance use, which emerged from the old HIV AIDS Center for, um, of Excellence at St. Paul's Hospital here. And they very rapidly organized an open letter saying, no one should read this review, um, super low quality. I forget the, like, the terms they used, but they, they then went through um, uh, several pages of critique, which are kind of just weird especially considering that in their letter, they agreed with our conclusion, which was there isn't any evidence yet. Now they say in the letter, those that are interested, um, that of course there's no evidence, it's so new and the evidence is coming and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But normally if, you've, if, if you read a review on a topic and you agree with the core conclusion, why would you go after why would you go after it in in such a um like you know just such a heavy-handed way and i think the for me the answer is is that it's it's not about the conclusion it's about what we should be doing in the absence of evidence and this group clearly strongly believes in um the the good of giving people drugs something that we would not do for mm -hmm. airline pilots or medical doctors or pharmacists. That's, that's, that's not the tradition at all. Mm -hmm. We ensure that they're able to reestablish agency. Our argument then and now is we should be focusing on restoring agency to patients regardless of their initial presentation. That should be our objective, recognizing that the core feature of addiction is the inability to control harmful practices. And, and, and success is reestablishing that control. Whether one chooses to continue using or using other things or doing other dangerous things, that's up to the person. It's mm -hmm. about restoring a quality of life that, that is fundamentally different than the suffering of addiction. Anyway, we it, it went it, it went on from there. The same group of people started contacting conference organizers where I was scheduled to speak as 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 as, as keynote, urging them to uninvite me. Um, we lost funding. Uh, many of the members, many of the people, the researchers um, that were part of a, an SFU um, center that I direct withdrew their membership kind of in a in a huff mm -hmm. uh over this and it's it's been um um it's been kind of a you know uh unfortunately a a, a very acrimonious wedge mm -hmm. that i you know i i hope we can get past i i i didn't see it coming i i mean i i knew that it would be uh um a challenging conversation to have, but I but I thought that's that's what we do in in academia, and that's that's what that's 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 our responsibility um, when we're thinking about others' well being is to have difficult conversations. We know the status quo has deep deep problems. Let's collectively do what we can to change them. Mm -hmm. And there there was no willingness to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. Things like. Uh, you know, our upcoming conference and other venues where people are not feeling so entrenched to the status quo or, or, can, or come with more of an open mind mm -hmm. um, are providing a lot more opportunity to in, enjoy the discussion that I, that I thought we and hoped we were going to have here in BC and across the country right away. Um, it, it goes through more painful gyrations. It becomes politicized. It's, you know, 
in order for this to happen, I've come, to, unfortunately, to, to the conclusion that there most likely will need to be some changes in government. I've never been partisan before in, in my work, but um, not that, by the way, not that a change in government, in my estimation, is any assurance of progress, but I do not see things changing in BC under our current NDP government or federally under the under the current Liberal NDP. Um, that, that seems to um, be a, a sort of a minimal step we need to take in order to have a chance at change. Gotcha. Well, Julian, I think, you know, um, I think we'll probably leave it there. I you just, I'll, I'll make two comments as we finish off. I, I'm, I'm struck with your approach to talking about addiction and people who are addicted seems to recognize that there is a spark of divinity in all human beings. You know, I'm putting, I'm phrasing it in a religious way, but it sounds like you haven't given up on people. Whereas I find the, the approach of many of the addiction experts who I, 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 listen to at conferences now, it's more of a paternalistic way of looking at humans as if they're billiard balls acted upon by forces beyond their control. And the best we can do is keep them from hurting themselves too much, but not about, it's not about restoring a real life to these people. So I, I appreciate your approach. And I'd also say uh, there's this great saying we have in emergency medicine, uh, don't just do something, stand there. You know, it's, it's this idea that if you rush in and you start doing something because you feel you have to do something, it might be the wrong thing. You might make things worse. And it, it sounds like that's, that's an issue with safe supply too. So um, with all that said, I'll, I'll mention again, you're going to be speaking and uh, there for the whole weekend. So people can chat with you outside of your formal talk at the free speech and medicine conference, at the end of October. People can uh, look at freespeechandmedicine.com and sign up there. And I, I look forward to meeting there. And all that said, uh, do you have any final comments before we go? No, this is, I mean, other than um, I really welcome that opportunity too. And I, I, I think that, you know, the, the chance to, um, it's a special format that, you know, that, that, that you have going that I'm looking forward to experiencing where, you know, there are opportunities for uh, plenary, um, experiences as well as you know more casual opportunities for 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 interaction directly and uh, I, I really look forward to speaking with people there and you know recognizing that we have to make some big changes we have to make some big changes in many areas of of, of life these days um, but I, I would submit that we would do well to show ourselves that we can take tangible steps to improve and safeguard the well-being of people who, in some cases, we are literally walking over or by on our streets, in our communities, and we can do it. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's an absolutely good news story waiting to be written and waiting to be experienced. And the people that I think are assembling um, in October are, um, are among the very people who can be part of mobilizing that change. Lovely. Well, I see you as being one of the authors that's writing that new and more positive story. And I, I hope that some of our attendees can link up with you and be part of that as well. So Julian Summers, thank you so much. Thanks, Chris.